It's so good to gather with you all again. I missed being with you last Tuesday. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into our lesson for this week, okay? Our great God, you are enthroned on high, Lord of all. And yet, through your son Jesus, you've invited us to be part of your family, your dearly loved daughters. And I pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would speak to each heart by your spirit. A word of life, a word of hope, a word of encouragement, a word of challenge where needed, Lord. Um, we're looking to you now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, we're in Matthew 5 now. Quick review, in the first four chapters, we've learned of Jesus' birth, the announcement of him as the promised king, the savior, and Emmanuel. We've seen him be anointed by the Father and the Spirit at his baptism, tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and oh, he was victorious. He's called his first disciples. Can you imagine being one of those disciples where Jesus greeting you and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you new. I will show, show you life to the full. So he's called his disciples and he's began his pub, begun his public ministry proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven, teaching and healing everywhere he went. And so at this stage where we begin in chapter 5 of Matthew 5, um, of, of Matthew, we're seeing that crowds of people are flocking to him. So that's our setting. I also want you to see in that, that in those first four chapters of Matthew, it was a narrative, right? And now we're jumping into what is the first of five discourses that Matthew includes throughout his gospel. And it's the most important one. The longest sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, that's found in chapters 5 through 7. N.T. Wright says this about the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to give it a title, it's what it means to call God Father. Last week, I was on an airplane, and there was this sweet young couple, very obvious to me, Loving on, it must have been their firstborn and only child. <laughs> and so throughout my flight, I got to witness the way they were loving on this cute, chubby baby boy. And what I noted especially was the dad. The way that he played peekaboo, showered him with kisses, at one point got up with him and stood with him until he fell asleep in his arms. And that baby was just so cherished and so known and so watched over, so delighted in. And I think, oh, it's just a little picture of the way that God loves us, the way he wants us to be known as his daughters that are cherished and loved. So as Jesus 
goes up on the mountain like Moses had done to meet with God and receive the old covenant law. Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. It's interesting to note here, Jesus is not receiving the law. He's declaring it himself. This is his inaugural address. He's announcing that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. He's announcing good news, and he's inviting all his hearers to enter into his kingdom. So as we read through these five chapters, we must always be asking the question, what is Jesus the king like, and what are the ways of his kingdom? I would call it the upside-down kingdom the upside-down kingdom. Open your Bibles with me, and let's read just through the Beatitudes, the beginning, the first uh, verses here at the beginning of chapter 5, beginning with verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on, on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The main word that we remember here, right, from the Beatitudes is blessed. It's at the beginning of all the lines in this poem. Blessed speaks of being in or living in relationship with God. Being in this continual state of being showered with his blessing and favor. So those that live with Jesus as king are blessed. Jesus is not teaching that you will be blessed if you live a life worthy of blessing. These are not commands. They are not if-then statements. He does not say, if you are poor in spirit, then you will have the kingdom of heaven. He's proclaiming the blessings that God showers upon those that receive him as king. Jesus is announcing and telling them about the wonder and the goodness of living under the reign of God, living with God as their father. He is announcing this wonderful news and inviting his listeners to be God's children, to receive him as king. So God is doing the blessing, and his people are just abundantly receiving the blessings. But what is surprising here is how he describes the people that are blessed. These ones 
are, are the ones that in the world's eyes, they would seem not to be blessed. In this world, back then and now, everyone thinks that people are blessed if they have power, if they are living in comfort, if they're successful and receiving lots of recognition. Jesus will make it clear later in this sermon that those who are enjoying the rewards of this world now, that's all they're going to get. The kingdom of this world is temporary. It's all about living for yourself and rising to the top. Jesus will go on to say that there are two kinds of trees, those that bear good fruit and bad fruit. And he will conclude the sermon by declaring that those who live according to their own way, not doing what he commands, that's like living in a house built on sand. When the storms come, your life will fall apart. So people of Jesus' heavenly kingdom are the downtrodden, those who are grieving, who are outcasts in this world. They're lowly, longing, and lacking, but oh, they are blessed by their king. When you look at this poem, there are nine lines that all begin with the word blessed. The first and the eighth lines end with the same phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are receiving the blessings of the kingdom now. The kingdom is here now, Jesus said. And yet, the lines in between these all end with this phrase, for they shall be, for they shall. So, as we've talked about before, we're realizing that the, Jesus, the kingdom that Jesus brings is the already and the not yet kingdom, right? There are blessings that are received now, and then there is a hope and a longing for the day when Jesus' kingdom is complete and everything will be made right. So the people here are described as poor in spirit, those who know their need for God. They're mourning, maybe mourning over their sin or mourning over their situations in this world. They are meek, those that are not on the top, but those are the, the, the downtrodden ones. They are ones who long for righteousness, long for things to be made right in this world. These four lines in the first half of the Beatitudes speak about the people's relationship with God. But then, in the next four lines, reveals how they, because God is their father and Jesus is their king, how they relate to others. They are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and persecuted for righteousness' sake. What I want you to be sure to note is that Jesus is not talking about all different kinds of people. He's talking about one group of people, one group of people that is now worldwide, right? The ones that live with Jesus as their king have entered into his kingdom. What kind of king is he? Jesus is the king who gives the kingdom to his people, who brings them comfort, who gives them the earth, who put things right, who gives mercy, who enables them to see God, who calls them sons and daughters of God, 
who rewards those who are persecuted for his name. Jesus is the king whose values are upside down from the values of this world. And he is the king who turns everything upside down, who gives people new identities, who does complete reversals in their lives, who transforms their hearts. He is declaring, I will make my people long for the things that I long for, and then I will fulfill those longings abundantly. His people are blessed even when their circumstances are difficult. They are blessed even when the world would say they are not. No bad situations can take away the blessedness of those who live with Christ as king and God as their father. Right in the middle of this poem is its key line. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the defining quality of God that's given in the Old Testament, hesed. It's a word that's hard for us to describe in the English language today. It speaks of his unfailing love, his faithfulness, his steadfastness, his abounding grace. When I read this phrase, blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy, I'm reminded of the promise given to Abraham. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. When you live with Jesus as your king, when you receive the abundant mercy and love that you did not earn and you definitely do not deserve, this mercy changes your heart. You can't keep it to yourself. It must flow out of you to others. So when you read these Beatitudes, I hope that you'll always remember that God blesses his people so that they can be a blessing in this world. And today, I want to encourage you, as Jesus' contemporary followers today, You are abundantly blessed. When you are lacking and longing, this is evidence of the Spirit at work within you. I want to remind you today that Jesus, your King, is with you, delighting in you, blessing you with his presence by his Spirit, transforming you and helping you to be a blessing in this world, and promising you that one day, there will be a reward for your faithfulness. Jesus goes on in verses 13 to 16 to identify his people as a community of salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Pliny the Elder, a, a historian that 
lived, wrote about 40 years after Jesus' time, said, there is nothing more useful than salt and sunshine. So the two things most useful in the world at its time period were salt and light. And they are to describe the new identity of Jesus' followers. The disciples of Jesus are necessary for the welfare of the world. We know that salt gives flavor and it preserves. They didn't have refrigerators back then, so it was very important for them in preserving their food. Salt is supposed to have a positive effect on everything it touches. I love the line in our study guide this week that said, Christ followers are to have an actively positive presence in this world. An actively positive presence in this world. Similarly to salt, light also has an impact, right? Light shines in the darkness. It drives the darkness away. Martin Luther King Jr. put it this way, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Jesus is proclaiming that his kingdom people are to bless the world. They are to live to bring God to the world and the world to God. Salt must be put onto the food, right, to have an effect. So the message is clear. You can't live apart from the world. He also says, don't hide your light, right, under a basket. Go into the dark places. See the people who are struggling in the darkness and care for them. When you experience persecution, don't run and hide. Shine and keep shining, even when the darkness seems to push back. Reflect me in this world. Why? To show others the goodness of your heavenly Father, the wonder of his grace. His kingdom people are to be a community of salt and light. And then Jesus goes on to reveal in the last part of chapter 5 a new righteousness. Jesus is giving his interpretation of the Old Testament law and says very clearly that he has come to fulfill it. Throughout the rest of his life, the religious leaders will condemn Jesus for not following the law, but we will see how he lives out every single part of the Sermon on the Mount, everything he calls his followers to. We will see his beautiful heart and his loving ways. At the end of this chapter, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus alone fulfills this. He is the only one who completely fulfills all of the law. And yet, amazingly, as he goes to the cross and offers his life, dies to pay the debt for our sin, rises again, and pours out his spirit, he gives us his righteousness 
so that we can be received as God the Father's dearly loved daughters. What a wonder, what a grace. So, what Jesus is getting at in this long section where he's looking at the Ten Commandments and giving his interpretation, his teaching on it, he's pointing to the people's hearts. So where does God's rule take place? It's to take place in the hearts of his people. He's revealing a new righteousness that is not just about outward actions, but takes place in the hearts of his own. Tim Keller calls the kingdom that Jesus brings the inside-out kingdom, right? He's speaking that it, that it begins and flows from the heart. A pastor, George Butrick, says this. Jesus refused the crown that Satan offered him in the wilderness, but he is king nonetheless. He is crowned again and again in the hearts of his people, and that inward coronation takes place amongst confession, tears, and great laughter. I think, oh, I want Jesus to be crowned, to be enthroned, ruling and reigning fully and freely in my heart. I don't want to just say with my mouth, that he's my king. It's a challenge. It's that inward coronation taking place in our hearts. Jesus says, as he refers to the law of Moses, you've heard it said, but I tell you, he's announcing a new covenant, a new way of life, obedience from the heart. He says, you've heard, don't murder, but I tell you, don't speak abusive words in anger. He says, you've heard, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, don't look with lust. He challenges clearly that marriage is to be honored. Divorce is not to be an easy option as it was back then where a, a husband could just say the word and dismiss his wife with no cause. He speaks to about oaths, which is addressing not taking the Lord's name in vain and saying, your word is to be truth. You stand by your, your word as my people, and you don't have to make oaths. And then he speaks about the law of reciprocity. Don't give back what, what people give to you. If someone hits you on the side of the face, you turn the other cheek, you don't hit back. And once again, it's this call to show mercy as people of the heavenly kingdom. We've not been given the punishment that we deserve. God has done a great reversal in our lives and in our hearts. So we can offer a great reversal to the people in our lives. When they hurt us, we can choose. We can show the mercy that God has showered upon us. And then love, he speaks of love. The command that embraces all others. Love just not your neighbors, but your enemies. And we do so because God does. In this passage, we see that God showers both the evil and the good with sunshine and rain. And I think of a little 
quote I found on Facebook last week, that snow is a reminder of God's grace. It doesn't pick and choose where it falls. It covers everything. God's grace and love are to flow out of his people to all. And we are to love others, to love our enemies, to pray for those that persecute us. Why? So that they can also become the sons and daughters of God the Father. In the midst of this really challenging new righteousness that people is calling, calling his people to, we must be reminded of the promises that had been given to God's people in the Old Testament. I've given you the passage in Jeremiah, but I'd like to read for you the passage in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So Jesus doesn't issue a command that's impossible because He calls and he commands, but then he equips by giving us his spirit that is transforming our hearts and helping us to be able to walk in his ways, his ways of love and mercy. And then Jesus also speaks of a secret righteousness in Matthew 6, verses 1 to 18. Jesus is giving instruction here on three important religious practices in Judaism, giving, praying, and fasting. And here, what I want you to see is this. Christianity is a relationship with God. It is not religion. The religious leaders of this time had made the old covenant law into over 600 commands that the Jews were called to obey. And it had become, the law had become such a great burden And yet, in the kingdom of heaven, Christ's followers get to call God their father. They are dearly loved children of God who are abundantly blessed. He knows each one. He sees. He sees our hearts. He sees our needs. He cares for us. And so it's this grace that's extended to us through Jesus that inspires our obedience. That inspired us, inspires us to live, to please God the Father alone. To honor him in secret. Do things that are just for him, that nobody else can see. So these practices are not done to be to re- religious, to try to impress others, to try to exalt ourselves over others, to try not to earn God's favor. The key is just the wonder and the grace that we get to be God's daughters and live in relationship with God as Father. So then... Because of that relationship, we give to the needy because he's given to us so generously, and we do so in secret. We are God's children who go to him in prayer in secret. 
we can fast, take time to not have food, just to be with him, to receive life from him, to seek his wisdom. And we do it in secret. Christianity is not a spiritual competition. It's a relationship of love. And then we get to the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, what I would call kind of the apex of these three chapters, the Lord's Prayer. This is not just a prayer to be memorized and prayed to God, but it's a pattern for prayer that Jesus gives to us. When we come to God in prayer, we come as his children and seeking him as our father. We give honor and praise to him, to his name. And we're seeking to honor his name by reflecting him in this world. And what do we ask for? We ask for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done. We don't come demanding that, that he help us to build our own little kingdoms. We seek for his kingdom to come and to be established and spread in this world. So we don't begin our prayers by coming to him with just a list of requests. We come remembering who he is and who we are in him. We come listening. Would you come, take time this week just to come to the Lord in prayer and just say, just remind me that I'm your dearly loved daughter. Let me hear words of truth from you rather than doing all the talking, right? Actually listening, letting your father speak to your heart through prayer and through his word. And then we trust in his provision and his pardon and his protection. And so if you want to sum up the Lord's prayer, sum up all of the Sermon on the Mount, you could say it in this phrase, oh, he's a good, good father. He's a good, good father. Then we have a, a, a little challenging few verses. In chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your he heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus is making it clear that his people are to be forgivers. And N.T. Wright says, the heart that will not open to forgive others will remain closed when God's own forgiveness is offered. So I have to ask you today, is there someone in your life that you need to forgive? May we offer to others the forgiveness that we're receiving, we're receiving from God the Father. And then we see at this, in the second half of chapter 6, Jesus is talking about priorities. He's exhorting the people to choose the right values, to choose heavenly tre treasures that last 
rather than earthly treasures that don't. To have eyes that bring light, not bad eyes that bring darkness. Which I really think is, is once again getting at the heart. And Jesus is calling his people, them and us, to undivided devotion to God the Father. And then he says, you have to make a choice. You can choose to love God or money. You cannot love and serve both. And then this beautiful passage where he says, oh, do not be anxious. Your heavenly father cares for the flowers and the birds. Surely he will provide for you. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness first, and all these things will be added unto you. I think back to that little boy being held in his father's arms on the airplane. And I think of my son, who's 26 and just moved away to Florida just a few weeks ago. And seeing how he's come to trust in his earthly father, that as he was making preparations and plans, as he's looking at a girl that's pretty special in his life, he's seeking out his dad's advice, right? When he has questions, when he's maybe drawn to worry. And goodness, my husband, he's great, but he's not a perfect father, right? And it just reminds me, I see that, the picture of that baby being held by his, his dad, and I think, when we're tempted to worry, when we remember what a good, good father that we have, that he sees and he knows and he cares and he's working in ways that we don't even know, oh, would we trust him more? And last but not least, we see some warnings in Matthew 7. Once, once again, Jesus is giving some instructions on how his people are to treat others. He says in so many words that the religious have a plank in their own eyes, but they focus on the speck that's in other people's eyes. Those that, that live with God as Father will see the plank in their own eye. And just see specks in others. Jesus is saying that my people are merciful because they've been overwhelmed by the greatness of their sin. And yet know that God's mercy is even greater. And then he encourages once again prayer. He says, oh, go to the Father, ask, seek, knock, pray, and keep on praying. You can count on your good Father to give good gifts, to reveal things to you, and to welcome you. And the golden rule, treat others as we would want to be treated. And then three great contrasting pictures, three warnings once again. We see the narrow gate. It's a path that leads to life and the wide gate. It's a path that leads to destruction. Trees with good fruit and bad fruit. Jesus is saying that his people need to identify false prophets. And then he pictures a judgment day 
where false and true followers of Christ will be revealed. And once again, it's not about outward behaviors. It's about knowing Jesus, about knowing God as your father. He concludes by saying that there are two houses, a house built on rock that stands when the storms come and a house built on sand that falls splat, right? Falls to pieces when the troubles and storms of life come. What we need to remember is the difference between those two houses. Both are hearing the words of Jesus, but only one is actually obeying, doing the words of Jesus and can have him as their rock, as their, the firm foundation of your life, of their life. So as we close today, a few questions for you. Is Jesus reigning on the throne of your heart? Maybe you can be talking to him about that. How are you enjoying living with God as your father? And how are you reflecting him in this world? Are you a woman of mercy, love, prayer, trust, and obedience? May we live as one who know that we have a good, good father. And may the grace that he, and blessings that he shower, showers us with inspire us to know and love and trust and serve him more. Amen.